Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 21st, 2010. My daughter gets confirmed this weekend. Pretty excited about that. In fact, I have um, responsibilities pertaining to that tonight, so I've got to stay focused today. Just got to focus. That's what I got to do. I got to focus. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant. In Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, there is, um, let's uh, we say, a pandemic of really bad theology that's spreading across the globe like a big fungus. And uh, it's killing everything in its path. Entire congregations are being wiped out. And um, well, we actually have the um, we have the vaccine. We have the antidote. We have the cure for that bad theology. And it's Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Him crucified for your sins. And the clarion call of the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It, it, that is the cure for all bad theology. So, <sighs> you know, I, I'm looking at my list here that I've compiled of stories that I could potentially discuss today, and I, that's the only way I can put it is because yesterday I, I, I gave like a handful of items I wanted to discuss, and I got to two of them, two yeah, so um, let's go through the <laughs> – today's program topic candidates are – yeah, that's probably the right, right way of putting about it. We, uh, I, I, I got a soundbite from Al Muller from a couple years ago um, about the emergent church and postmodernism. And uh, something he said a few years ago is just spot on. See, here's the deal. I've been – you know, I, I watch the discernment blogs. I'm a discernment blogger. And um, there is, how shall I put it, premature uh, celebration, uh, tiptoeing on the grave of the emergent church. And I'm telling you, that the, the emergent church ain't dead. Um, I'm attending an emergent conference next week. And uh, that being the case, I mean, 
I f- find it hard to believe that, uh, you know, I would be attending a conference put on by a bunch of, uh, well, basically by a passe dead theology. In fact, uh, when you look at the list of people who's attending it, it, and who's speaking at it, this this thing ain't dead. I don't know why everyone wants to declare the emergent church is dead. Maybe they think it's a nightmare. Maybe they think it's uh, if they declare it dead, then they don't have to deal with it. And uh, so we're going to be playing a soundbite from Al Mohler today from a couple of years ago, and I'm going to make a cogent and relevant point. And some of you are saying, you know, when have you ever been known to do that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to attempt it today. So, you know, we'll see if I succeed and pull it off. And uh, and uh, it'll relate back to this uh, this thing. Is the emergent church dead? Hardly. I mean, seriously, I don't think so at all. Okay, let's see here. So we got the Al Mohler thing. We've got uh, the Pope says we must repent for abuse. I think this is a step in the right direction. And uh, let's see here. Persecuted Christians in the UK are joining forces. We'll talk about that. And then I got two stories, uh, one from the Christian Post and one from USA Today about the uh, uh, the high court, the U.S. Supreme Court, hearing a policy about non-discrimination. I'm going to be reading that. And then depending on time, we can, we can talk about Jennifer Knapp, who is a uh, Christian uh, female uh, recording artist uh, from, uh, on a Christian label who's uh, come out of the closet. And then we've got news, uh, New York Episcopal priest to Gary, uh, Gary, to marry his gay partner. And then uh, our sermon review today uh, comes from Aviator Church in Derby, Kansas, uh, Pastor Joe Boyd. And the name of it is Breakout uh, Week 2. So this is going to be from their Breakout Sermon Series, the current sermon series that they're in. And uh, and uh, this is a sermon numero dos in the uh, in their current sermon series about breakout. And no, we're not talking about breakout in the sense of like, you know, some, you know, pandemic disease. Although, you know, I do send, tend to talk about false doctrine as a pandemic uh, that's destroying. I talk about it as a heresy hurricane. Yeah, but I don't think that's what he meant. So anyway, that's uh, what, what's on deck for today's program. And understand, um, I reserve the right to wax eloquent and to cut from the roster any story that I just couldn't get to. Anyway, so I mean, and if we don't get to it, hopefully we'll get to it tomorrow. And then, uh, you know, and so tomorrow's a normal program for us. Okay, so uh, and I'm, I don't have any fanfare for this segment, but... Um, going back through my archives, going back through, um, my library of resources, um, back in, uh, when was this? The Contending for the Truth Conference in 2007. So, uh, about three years ago, uh, they, uh, the Ligonier guys had a Contending for the Truth Conference and Al Mohler and Ravi Zacharias and uh, you know the Ligonier guys, uh, they they were speakers at this uh, thing, and they and they had a um, uh, I don't know what it is with the the Ligonier guys. They, they one of the things they do is they have like a a panel discussion, and they bring out the comfy chairs, and so. <laughs> So uh, we've got uh, com- we've got Al Mohler, Ravi Zacharias, and others sitting in comfy chairs discussing the emergent church, 
And uh, and by the way, Lane Chaplin uh, has this on his blog, uh, his video blog at uh, his video channel at um, uh, YouTube. It's uh, YouTube.com forward slash Lane Ch, and you would look for the the post from November seventeenth two thousand seven entitled "Let's Talk Postmodernism and the Emergent Church." I mean, it's something similar to coffee talk, you know. And some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Don't you don't, do you remember that Saturday Night Live sketch? Uh, you know, coffee talk. The civil war was neither civil nor war. Discuss. Yeah. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others are thinking, okay, Roseboro. Um, got a question for you. That whole thing about you talking about adult beverages. Have you been? No, I haven't. Anyway, um, <laughs> here's a, a doctor. Well, actually, we got a qu- the question comes first, and then Doctor Al Mueller responds. Here's the question and Doctor Mueller's response, and I, I want to get to something in particular. Again, keep in mind the overarching topic that I want to discuss is: Is the emergent church dead? People are writing obituaries for the emergent church. Uh, here's um, here's the question and Doctor Al Mueller's response. What are your thoughts on the emerging church or the emergent church, and, and what are its characteristics? Here's the expert. Mm-hmm. Well, I, let's, let's do that quickly and say that it can mean many different things, actually. Uh, there are some that are emerging as a mood, uh, which you know means they have a goatee and square glasses and light candles. And uh, that... The main thrust, however, is the embrace of postmodernism, and that's why when you see most of it branded that way, you're really talking about a fairly self-conscious embrace of postmodernism, a a rejection of what they see as the the overly cognitive, uh, countercultural kind of commitments of mainstream evangelicalism. They're talking about us. Uh, And uh, so they they would go at this... And, and I would just simply put out a strong warning, and, and there's, there's almost no way to put this in a tight little acorn of a summary that would be helpful, except to say the emergent brand is the hardline form of this, and it's represented by such persons as Brian McLaren, and you can read about him, who, uh, who is right up front in, in terms of the fact that it's this relativistic understanding of truth. It's, uh, it's the rejection of the law of non-contradiction. I mean, his book, Generous Orthodoxy, you know, he comes out saying you can be a Calvinist and an Arminian, you can be a Catholic and a Protestant, you can be, you know, charismatic and a non-charismatic, and all these kind of chapter after chapter after chapter. And uh, it's just this mood. By the way, one of the websites that has to do with this is called the Ooze, and I can't think of a better thing to call it. Then the ooze is like trying to go back to the primordial, uh, go back to, to uh, what uh, Ravi was talking about, this uh, you know, undifferentiated uh, land and sea. That's kind of what they're looking for here. Uh, I think we need to be very, very careful about this because today's liberals were evangelicals yesterday. And what we continually have are break-offs in which people who are the sons and daughters of the ones who rejected the liberalism, you know, bring it in in a different way and in a new form. And just to be short, let me tell you that if you get the truth question wrong, you're going to be aberrant in every dimension of the life of your church and in, and in your personal understanding of Christianity. And if we, if, if we, if we forego that, if we surrender that, mm-hmm. if we come off the heights of, of that commitment, then I don't care what you're going to call it, emerging, emergent, or whatever, it's going to be a new form of liberalism in the church. 
I think also. Okay, that's the relevant soundbite. We got to be careful. What did Al Mohler say in two thousand and said two thousand and seven? He said the emergent church was basically basically has the potential to become a new form of liberalism, and that's exactly what it has become. Now, what exactly am I responding to? Well, in uh, World Magazine, uh, the WorldMag.com, uh, Anthony Bradley wrote a uh, an op-ed piece. And uh, let me read this to you, and uh, we'll kind of go from uh, we'll, we'll kind of build off that. Keep Dr. Mueller's uh, ideas in your mind that the emergent church will basically become a new form of liberalism. Now, listen to this: reading a new book or going to a conference about the emerging church is a waste of time and money unless it's to understand the movement as a recent historical one. The emerging church movement has ended. Andrew Jones, a leader of the movement in the U.K., wrote about the demise at the end of 2009. Rob Bell, the founding pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, delivered an April 4th sermon on the resurrection that marks, in my opinion, the end of an era. Bell recounts how Mars Hill started out to be a different kind of church without the baggage of watered-down seeker churches and the religious legalism of traditional churches. In a moment... Of wonderful honesty, Bell admitted that Mars Hill had become a big institution that wounded people in similar ways as the church's many Gen Xers swore they would not mimic. Jones affirms much of Bell's experience in his blog. From Brian McLaren to Erwin McManus to Rob Bell to Tony Jones to Mark Driscoll and others, the theological lines have been drawn and are settled. We are all we have all moved on. We know who fits into evangelicalism, post liberalism, anabaptism, Calvinism, and so on. If you're interested in, in the emerging movement as a, as church history, pick up a copy of Emerging Churches, Creating Christian Communities in Postmodern Cultures by Eddie Gibbs and Ryan Bulger. Uh, Gibbs and Bulger, Bulger provide a good summary of the short of the short-lived movement. Emerging churches are not young adult services, Gen X churches, churches within a church, seeker. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, seeker churches, purpose-driven or new or new paradigm churches, fundamentalist churches, or even evangelical churches. They are a new expression of church. The three core practices are identifying with the life of Jesus, transforming secular space, and commitment to community as a way of life. These practices are expressed in or lead to the other six, which are welcoming the stranger, serving with generosity, participating as producers, uh, creating as uh creating as created beings, leading as a body, and taking part in spiritual activities. There's a wonderful obituary for the emerging church, for those who, st- who for those still concerned that we need to spend time trying to understand it and protect people from it. Don't waste your time, Anthony Bradley writes. He says, Bell's April 4th sermon recounts that Mars Hill entered a process of rethinking everything about itself as it has grown and matured into an institution over the past 11 years. Mars Hill and other churches born out of the emergent church era, are no longer new, trendy, cool, or innovative. Uh, these formerly cool churches are full of singles, married couples, growing children, balding middle-aged men, and so on, who are all trying to figure out how to live a redemptive life here and now while confronting daily struggles with sin, repentance, grace, loving the poor, marriage-raising children, the recession, ailing parents, etc. Bell is launching a new focus on the implications of the resurrection, resurrection signals victory over sin, death, and the devil. Bell's noted, uh, notes reads, resurrection announces that God has not given up on the world. 
because this world matters. Jesus is victory. God has redeemed a people to be his intimate allies and blah, blah, blah. Because postmodernism as a movement is also dead as scientific realism emerged as a recent culture-shaping philosophical movement, the generation of Christians struggling to meet the challenges of postmodernism instead of yelling at it and hoping it would go away are shifting as well to address a world asking different questions. While the effects of the emergent church movement will linger for some time, we will begin to see books praising and attacking the movement uh, go out of print. Now, I don't know Anthony Bradley, but I couldn't disagree with him more. The reason why I disagree with him is because I think Mueller got it right in 2007. He said that this basically what we're looking at is the rise of a new liberalism. And I think the right way to look at what the emergent church is and was, um, was an attack within the religious left against modernist liberalism. Now work with me here for a second. You're sitting here going, huh? What is he talking about? Okay. Here's the deal. Back in the mid nineties, People were celebrating the well, not celebrating, but basically lamenting the death of of liberal mainline denominations. They they basically run their course, and and these churches were shriveling up, dying. I mean, we're we're talking. Okay, let me give you an example. My great great grandfather. Okay, um, he was a Methodist, and he helped plant a church in Memphis, Tennessee, called St. Luke's you know, church and St. Luke's church at the time was a Methodist congregation. And, you know, they were legalists and, you know, Wesleyans and, and, and the like. And, um, and, you know, the church got to be ginormous. Okay. If you were to attend, uh, you know, if you were to attend, in fact, similar congregations have, you know, sprung up in the greater Memphis area. If you were to go from, uh, you know, uh, church to church, you know these uh, these old you know Methodist churches in the city of Memphis. You would find some of these congregations that could seat a thousand people, where on a Sunday morning they're having thirty to fifty people show up. Okay. The reality is is that they tied themselves to the culture, and they they completely biffed it on uh, biblical authority, and they found themselves dying. Hang on, get, um. One of the books that Mueller mentioned last week was Thomas C. Reeves' book called uh, The Empty Church, written, I think, in 1996. And uh, Reeves, you know, basically chronicles the death of these uh, mainline denominations. Okay, so in 1996, we're all talking about the death of the emergent church. Now, what I think, not the emergent church, the death of these liberal mainline denominations... When I was at the Jurgen Moltmann conference uh, put on by Joe Pa Productions in Chicago last year, um, I attended that conference along with uh, Bob DeWay of Twin City Fellowship. And uh, we had a great conversation with Doug Padgett uh, uh, between sessions uh, on, the, on the morning of the second day of the conference. And uh, Doug Padgett came over to talk to us, shook our hands, and you know he's a very nice guy. And uh, Doug, I looked at Doug and I said, you know what, in listening to this conference, it's become very clear to me that modernist liberalism is dead. And 
I tell you, there was a gleam in uh, in Paget's eye. He looked at me and says, "Yeah, that thing is gone." You know, just we killed it, and that's what I think we have to look at the emergent church as. The emergent church was not primarily about being trendy, having a goatee or a soul patch. It wasn't about wearing square glasses. It wasn't about lighting candles. It wasn't, it, that's not what this thing was about. That's how it manifested itself early on. But really, that's not what's, what's ticking under the hood here. What we are looking at in the emergent church is a brand new form of liberalism. And those guys have not left the battlefield. The last time I checked, Tony Jones, Doug Paget, uh, Danielle Schroyer, uh, uh, Brian McLaren, Samir Salmanovic, uh, and, uh, Peter Rollins, uh, Rob Bell, all of these guys are still liberal. They have, they have not, they have not repented. They are still publishing books. They still are attacking the historic Christian faith, attacking penal substitution, redefining things. And uh, and basically, uh, they still have an audience of people that are purchasing their things and uh, and listening to them, attending their churches, and believing what these guys are saying. That being the case, if you're going to sit there and say that the emerging church is dead because it, it doesn't have the same cool trendiness that it had at the beginning, you've missed the whole point. This was not about being cool and trendy. This was about a major, major battle, theological and methodological battle, in the left wing of the, of the visible uh, uh, Christian church. What happened? Modernist liberalism is gone. Guys like John Shelby Spong and Do John Dominic Crossan, they are dinosaurs. Those guys, they are absolutely dinosaurs. I'm sure that they like keeping them around as fo basically living fossils to remember what modernist liberalism was like and what it was all about. But those, it's just a matter of time before Spong and Don, and Cross and, and a, a few others of that caliber basically pass on. What's happened? A whole new, completely revitalized form of liberalism has arisen and taken its place. And it's highly informed by postmodernism. And you can say, well, listen, postmodernism, I mean, just look, Google the phrase postmodernism is dead. And you'll see there's a lot of people out there who say that postmodernism is dead. Yeah, here's the problem, though, is that this new form of liberalism highly depends upon postmodern philosophy and its assumptions. And it hasn't repudiated them nor embraced anything different than this. So you can say that maybe there's a new philosophical school that's arising that has challenged postmodernism out in academia. But keep in mind, when we really first were hearing about postmodernism and postmodern deconstruction, it was the early 1990s. It was the late 80s, early 90s is when we were first hearing about it. And I, at that point, I didn't even understand it. Yeah, I remember Bob Pazentino uh, talking to me about this uh, one time, and I and I was looking at him like a complete deer in the headlights. 
you know, he was talking about how he was he was debating some uh, some postmodern deconstructionist philosophy uh, philosophy prof who was a visiting prof at the, at the University of California Irvine, and I just looked at him and I go, I have no idea what that sentence just meant, Bob. I I just don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so when we first heard about this. Yeah, that's when it really you know, that's when it was really be first beginning to pick up steam in academia it would, it picked up steam in literary in literary criticism and uh, philosophy it's run its course apparently but i'm not so sure that just because you know academia has found some new thing to play with that that means that, that it's any better but in reality here that's when we first heard about this it was the late 1980s early 1990s and it doesn't even really come into flower in the christian church until the last 5 to 6 years so in other words philosophically the Christian church always seems to be running about 15 years behind the the the, you know, the major culture. And as a result of it, it's, you know, I don't see some new thing rising up to challenge uh, these, uh, these these new liberals. This is liberalism 2.0. I don't see anything rising up to challenge this. In fact, these guys are pretty much going along their own way. And I'm sorry, but... But Anthony Bradley from World Magazine basically making the claim that, you know, that uh, we don't need to defend ourselves against this stuff. Oh, yeah. As soon as they stop publishing books and people stop listening and when they all of them repent and trust in Christ, embrace penal substitution and uh, and repudiate this liberalism, then I'll say that we well maybe maybe we can probably say we can put our arms down and stop. Uh, stop our artillery fire at the emerge, you know, at this new liberalism. But that's what this thing is. It's a whole new form of liberalism. So what the what 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 happened? A new liberalism arose up in the left wing of the visible church and attacked and defeated modernist liberalism. As a result of it, we now have a completely brand new revitalized liberalism it's alive and well and it ain't going anywhere i don't care if you call it emergent emerging i don't care if you call it fred ted or justin i i don't care if you call it elephant it whatever you want to name it, it doesn't matter what we have is a completely the emergent guys succeeded in 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 their goals, they completely attacked and destroyed modernist liberalism, and have basically replaced it with this new form of liberalism. As a result of it, this thing ain't going nowhere. And if you think that it's not a threat to the to the church and not a threat to people that you know, and it's going to send people to hell that embrace it, you've got another thing coming. You don't understand the nature of it at all. So. You know, um, World Magazine and others who are writing obituaries about the emergent church, sorry, sorry, I just, I'm not buying it. I talk to these guys, I attend their conferences, I read their books, they're not going nowhere. They ain't going nowhere. They've conquered modernist liberalism, and they are now the official uh, king of the hill in the left wing of the visible church. I told you I would go long today. I just, you know, <laughs> how am I going to get to my other stories? Anyway, we're going to take our uh, we're going to take our first uh, break, and uh, when we come back, you know, I don't even know what we're going to talk about. I'm going to have to check my notes because obviously I'm waxing eloquent, and 
much to say. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we 
hate to say that we can know truth. We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now! That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. The emergent church, I don't care what you call it, isn't dead or gone. It's now become the predominant form of liberalism. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Uh, you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. 
And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew. The other says donate. Uh, when you join our crew, what you're doing is you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It happens automatically, and it's a wonderful thing because when we get to a 1,000 listeners who've joined, and we just need a little more than 300, uh, when we get to a 1,000 listeners who've joined, that'll ensure that on a monthly basis that we're at least able to pay our minimum bills. Uh, keep the lights on, things like that. It's, you know, and if you want to figure out what our budget is for the year, well, real simple. You take 695, multiply it times a thousand, and multiply, multiply that times 12, and voila, you now know how much we need to operate. It is not a secret. <laughs> and you're sitting there going, hey, wait a second, that's not even six figures. Right. Correct. So what you're saying, Rose Bros, you don't make uh, $250,000 a year. That's correct. I, <laughs> and I don't own a jet and I don't have a limo and, and I go to Walmart like everybody else and <laughs> we don't eat out much. You know, I, I, I could care less about the trappings of life. It's all about preaching the gospel and being able to come to the microphone every day and, uh, do what I love doing the most, and that's telling you about Christ and him crucified for our sins. So anyway, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Of course, if you'd like to fill in the amount as to how much you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, real quick, personal note. Pay attention here, folks. Um... Back on March 26th, uh, today is the 21st, so we're coming up on a month that uh, this uh, this happened as far uh, it happened a month ago. I issued my challenge to Perry Noble. He he basically said, you know, in his Unleashed 2010 uh, conference that uh, you know, the reason why I I uh, review sermons and people's sermons is because I don't have the well, he used a different term, but uh, the, I don't have the nuggets to, um, you know, to preach my own. And so I called him on his uh, on on his, on his statement. I pointed out the fact that Perry Noble he doesn't have a single godly critic in his mind. Anybody who would dare criticize him is uh, needs Viagra, is uh, isn't normal, uh, you know, has something desperately wrong with them, is a coward, all those kinds of things. And so I basically called him on. I said, listen, Pastor Noble, I not only am I, do I have the nuggets to preach my own sermons, I'm willing to come to Anderson, South Carolina, and preach a sermon at New Spring Church in an event, we'll call it a sermon cage fight. I'll go toe to toe. Perry and I will have dueling sermons, and I'd be willing to do it at New Spring Church. Well, um, I haven't heard anything back from Perry Noble, um, and so I've been I've been trying to push the issue. I mean, he needs to say one way or another, yay or nay. I mean, my question for Perry is: Does Perry have the nuggets to meet me? face-to-face in a sermon cage fight? I mean, here's the deal. I've proven that I'm willing. I, I, I have the nuggets to preach my own sermon. I mean, he can't make that claim anymore. The question is, does he have the um, the chutzpah to, uh, to take me up on my challenge? Well, I haven't been able to get an answer from 
new spring. And as a result of it, I feel like I have to come to you all, my my listening audience, and uh, enlist your support, enlist your help. Now, I want you to listen carefully to how I want you to help me, okay? Basically, what I need you to do is call New Spring Church and politely, kindly, lovingly insist that Pastor Noble needs to make a decision one way or another as to whether or not he will meet me head-to-head in a sermon cage fight at New Spring. One way or another. It's either a yes or a no. I can't get an answer one way or the other. And so, as a result of it, I need your help. I, maybe if we, uh, maybe if my listeners applied a little bit of pressure to Pastor Noble, we might get an answer. So, here's the uh, phone number for New Spring Church. Area code 864-226-6585. Again, that's area code 864 864- Two two six six five eight five. Now, but just so you know, I did send an email uh, earlier this week, basically to uh, his personal assistant, outlining the details once again, and basically saying I need to hear an answer one way or another. And so, uh, you know, when you get when you call, you obviously won't get through to pa- Pastor Noble. If you do, send me an email. I, <laughs> I want to hear how that happened, uh, but. Uh, you know, when you call, ask to speak you know, to Pastor Noble. They'll put you through to his uh, his uh, gatekeepers. And when you get on the phone with them, just politely say that you're calling uh, because you're a listener to Fighting for the Faith and uh, you would like to insist that Pastor Noble uh, make a decision one way or another whether or not he's going to uh, take up Chris Rosebro on his offer uh, to meet him face-to-face in a sermon cage fight, plain and simple. And uh, and let's see if uh, a few phone calls can help pressure them into a decision. <clears throat> I just need to know one way or another. I mean, seriously. Okay. Mm, what do I want to talk about right now? Looking at my list here and then looking at the clock. <laughs> oh, man. You see, you get me talking on a topic that I feel passionately about, and uh, I could end up waxing eloquent to the point where I have to make some decisions about what I'm going to talk about and what not to talk about. Okay, I think one of the most important uh, – let's take a look here. Yeah, um, I think one of the most important stories of the day uh, is a battle over schools' non-discrimination policy reaches high court. This is from uh, Lawrence D. Jones, who's a Christian Post reporter, so this is from ChristianPost.com. I read, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Monday in a case pitting a public law school's non-discrimination policy against a Christian student group's belief-based requisites. In just a little over an hour, the court heard from both sides of the debate and mulled over a number of hypothetical situations ranging from racist skinheads in an NAACP club uh, to the takeover of a Muslim group by anti-Muslim students. At the heart of the case are two policies that student organizations at the Hastings College of Law in San Francisco must agree to abide by in order to function as a registered on-campus group, the all-comers policy and the non-discrimination policy. 
Though the college claims that the policies are in place to ensure that all students have equal access to all school-subsidized and school-recognized activities, the local chapter of the Christian Legal Society say they are unconstitutional because they are overtly viewpoint discrimination. Quote, It is manifestly overboard with respect to any purposes stated, argued Michael W. McConnell, lead counsel for the, for the plaintiffs, and, of course, in Healy versus James, yeah, we're all familiar with that one, uh, this court held that any restriction on, a, on student speech form may be no more extensive than is required by its purposes. It is also a frontal assault on freedom of association, he added. Freedom of association is the right to form around shared beliefs. Gregory Garr, on behalf of the respondents, however, tried to point to the fundamental difference between a group that forms around shared beliefs and a group that says people of a particular sexual orientation are not allowed to become members. Now, hang on a second. Um, Got to point this out. This is We're talking about a Christian group at a public college, and what are they doing? They're basically saying if you're an unrepentant practicing homosexual – um, they uh, would they want to bar your participation in their group? Why? Well, I mean, let me um, come up with a repugnant uh, example. I mean, let's say I wanted to be a, a part of Campus Crusade for Christ, and um, you know, listen, I, I then let's just say that I've discovered some brand new thing called polygamy, and I've decided that you know, rather than being faithful to my wife, that I was just going to go and be faithful to many different wives, and uh, and you know just start you know having my own little uh posse of uh, of of women that I'm married to and but I want to still be the um you know the head guy at the um at campus crusade and and teach there i mean people will say what is going on oh and by the way i also have three mistresses and a concubine too i mean you see people they say wait i don't want this guy leading our christian group because he is obviously in unrepentant sin and his um well the let's say issues biblically disqualify him from leadership in a christian organization and from teaching in the church oh but see you know now you can't discriminate against me i we we now we now live in a world where you can't discriminate against people especially me do you see the problem here is that when it comes to freedom of association as christians we have to be able to stand by our religious convictions plain and simple now, the, the the issue here is is that the liberals are all for non-discrimination and unity at all costs, and they want all things redefined. We don't. We're not going to define Christianity according to biblical terms. We're going to define it the, uh, in cultural terms of the way we want it to be. Therefore, we don't like your biblical interpretation of Christianity, and we're going to force you into a position where if you're going to exist, you have to exist in a way where you don't discriminate against people who want to be part of your group who traditionally and biblically should be excluded that's the issue <clears throat> let's see here the reason why they are here today is because uh christian legal uh cls insisted on the right to discriminate uh to exclude students on the basis of their sexual orientation he argued cls has sued hastings college of law in 2004 after the school denied official recognition uh, recognition to the local chapter of cls over its refusal to abide by the school's non-discrimination policy Attorneys with CLS and the Alliance Defense Fund 
uh, for academic freedom have since argued on behalf of the CLS chapter, insisting that the group should be able to decide its own membership and not be required by the college to admit homosexuals and non-Christians as members and officers in order to receive school recognition. In April 2006, however, the U.S. District Court of Northern, uh, of the Northern District of California ruled in favor of the defendants, which includes school officials and Hastings, uh, and Hastings Outlaw, a recognized student organization. A panel in the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals that heard oral arguments in the case in March 2009 later affirmed the district court's opinion, ruling against CLS in an unpublished disposition on March 17, 2009. Two months after the Ninth Circuit made its ruling, CLS filed a petition uh, for writ of um, yeah, uh, certioriari. Oh, I'm, I'm messing that word up. Uh, Deloach, don't email me. I'll figure it out. Uh, anyway, in the Supreme Court, seeking a reversal of the decision, a petition later backed by near, nearly 100 different organizations and 14 attorney generals uh, through amica, amicus briefs, seven months later, the Supreme Court agreed to intervene in the Christian Legal Society versus Martinez, while the court appeared divided on Monday, Gar was notably interrupted more often than McConnell and by several justices from both the left and the right. To Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the case sounds like a debate over whether uh, the policy as the school believes it should be implemented is not a good one. Justin Antonian Scalia, meanwhile, said that he was inclined to find it weird to require, for example, the Campus Republican Club to admit Democrats, not just to membership, but to officership. Quote, to require this Christian society to allow atheists not just to join, but to conduct Bible classes, right? That's crazy, he said. In her remarks, Justice Ruth, uh, uh, Ruth Ginsburg called the all-comers policy ill-advised and pointed to the school's claim that it has been working fine and that there have been no, there have been not been any cases of sabotage or takeovers. Gar furthermore said groups can take measures to prevent such incidences from happening, but Gar did not rule out that takeovers could happen and said if such a development did occur, the school would reconsider its policy. As for a group that goes, uh, that does get taken over, Gar suggested that the group's original members would likely have to form another group, but he made clear that such an, in, uh, an incident has never happened ever in the history of education. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, here's uh, how USA Today covered the uh, story. The headline reads, Justices Split Sharply on School's Bias Policy. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting way of putting it. Hang on a second here. I want to actually open this in my browser so that I can view it correctly here. Uh, Washington, the Supreme Court struggled Monday with whether a state-run law school may refuse to recognize a religious student group that excludes gay students and non-Christians. Christian student group that excludes non-Christians. Uh-huh. Quote, why doesn't this just, uh, why doesn't this just all work out? Justin, Justice Anthony Kennedy asked in frustration about why the conflict is before the court in the first place. Quote, if the Christian Legal Society has these beliefs, I am not sure why people that don't agree with them want to belong to them in the first place. The case pits a university interest 
in safeguarding students from discrimination against a religious group's interest in preserving its identity and message by limiting participation. In some respects, the justices appear divided along ideological lines. Liberal-leaning justices such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg sympathized with the anti-bias goals of the University of California Hastings College of Law, and more conservative justices such as Samuel Alito seemed inclined toward the students. As often happens on this divided bench, centrist conservative Kennedy appeared to be in the middle, yet he and others, such as Justice Stephen Breyer, also questioned whether the case had been sufficiently developed in lower courts to allow the justices to resolve uh, the students' claim that Hastings targeted their particular views. The case could affect campuses nationwide, and many groups are following it, including the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Uh, on the students' side and the American Civil Liberties Unions on the Hastings side. The dispute began when Hastings officials declined to recognize the Christian Legal Society chapter and and give it student activity funding, meeting space, and other privileges based on the group's refusal to let gay students and non-Christians fully participate. The chapter group sued, saying its members had a First Amendment right to limit participation to people who who subscribe to their beliefs, including a ban on homosexual relations. Lower courts rejected their claim, accepting Hastings' stance that its policy uh, uh, prevents bias. Stanford law professor Michael McConnell, represented the CLS chapter, told the justices that making group uh, groups admit students who do not accept their message is a frontal assault on freedom of association. If Hastings is correct, a student who does not believe in the Bible is entitled to demand to lead a Christian Bible study, McConnell insisted. Justice Sonia Sotomayor tested the scope of McConnell's argument. Are you suggesting that if a group wanted to exclude a black, uh, all black people, all women, all handicapped persons, she asked, that a school has to accept that group and recognize it, give it funds? Yeah, isn't the question, doesn't the United States Constitution basically make it a right for freedom of association? And freedom of religion? I'm, I am th- I think this is just clear cut, but apparently not anymore in this, well, post-mod, post-postmodern age, now that postmodernism apparently is dead and we can just, you know, write obituaries about it. <sighs> just, you know, mon- makes you want to scream. Anyway, in a similar, um, in a similar story from across the pond... Um, persecuted Christians join forces. This is from uh, the Telegraph in the UK by Peter Hutchinson uh, from uh, April 15th. In a letter published on Thursday's Daily in Thursday's Daily Telegraph, high-profile Christians, including Caroline Petrie, who was suspended from her work as a nurse for offering to pray for a patient, pledged their support to Gary McFarlane, a Christian rela- uh, relationship counselor, appealing against an employment tribunal ruling that supported his sacking. Love that word. He was fired uh, for refusing to give sex therapy to homosexual couples. His lawyer, supported by Lord Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, will submit an application on Thursday requesting that a special specialist panel of five judges with an understanding of religious issues be set up to hear the case and future cases involving religious rights. They will urge senior uh, judges to stand down from the future court of appeal hearing because of what they claim are disturbing and dangerous rulings issued by them in recent religious discrimination cases. So here's the deal. This is not happening just in the United States. This is also happening in Great Britain. Apparently, uh, you know, 
liberalism, uh, political and theological, has you know taken root in such a way to to where uh, you know. Christians don't have the ability to f- freely associate with other Christians without uh, without discriminating against non-Christians in their groups. I mean, what? I mean, seriously. Um, you y- you think about what's going on here. I mean, you know, it, all in the name of quote diversity and unity. And yet, the the if it's really all about diversity and unity, shouldn't it be diversity of you know, uh, you know, basically different groups who have diff- diverse views all being able to come to the marketplace of ideas and, you know, promote and defend their ideas. I mean, at this point, it's this isn't diversity that's being defended. Uh, this is basically this is, you know, this it's the only people that are not allowed to be diverse well, to have basically keep a, a pristine view of their uh, beliefs are Christians. If you're a Christian and you're discriminating against non-Christians, you're gone. Or if you work for a group and you're a Christian and you decide to pray for somebody or to ban a homosexual from being, you know, from doing something, that's in to- you're not tolerated. So basically, this is a form of discrimination against practicing Christians, uh, all in the name, basically by attacking them and saying that they're not discri- they're not uh, they're they're being discriminatory. You see what's going on there? Yeah, maybe I didn't explain it right. I have to think it through. Maybe I can find a better way to describe this. Uh, this interest, yeah, but and then we got this story. Uh, Jennifer Knapp comes out um, from uh, the uh, Christianity Today by Mike Mooring. Seven years ago, while at the top of her game, Jennifer Knapp announced what seemed to be uh, to many a sudden decision. She was stepping away from. Um, Christian music taking an indefinite hiatus. Rumors began to swirl. She was burned out. She needed a rest. That she was upset about something. She was and that she was gay. Turns out that the rumors were true. As Knapp reveals in this uh, rambling ex- uh, exclusive interview with Christianity Today, the one-time Grammy nominee ended her hiatus in late 2009 with a few small shows and an updated website and an announcement that she was writing new songs. Many of those songs will be featured on Letting Go, releasing May 11th, uh, that's my birthday, and her first album since 2001's The Way I Am. Uh, let's see here. Go that way. Hello. There we go. In one of her first extensive interviews since announcing her comeback, Nap 36 talks to Christianity Today about why she quit music in the first place. Her lifestyle choice, her rekindled passion for songwriting, her faith, her new album, and more. Uh, you announced your hiatus in 2003. What was the sudden decision, or what was, uh, or was it boiling for a while? This is Knapp's response. She says it was boiling for me. I think people thought I just fell into a hole and disappeared, but I had been trying to get out of being on the road 250 days a year. Lay It Down was a 2000 release, and The Way I Am was a 2001. Those records were literally back to back, and I was touring while recording The Way I Am. I was telling people, "Man, I can't keep up the schedule." This is just a a little bit crazy. I didn't have any space to just be a normal human being. I finally realized nobody was going to make the decision for me, so I just said, I'm not kidding. I need a break, and it starts now. That decision came mid-2001, but my schedule didn't allow me to stop until uh, September 2002. Uh, When I did my last show, I basically still had about a year and a half worth of contracted concerts and other things before I could stop. A lot of people hit burnout, but uh, I don't think many think I'm going to take seven years off. What were you thinking? Well, at the time, I literally thought I was quitting. I needed such a break, and I needed the silence uh, to be uh, deafening. But in 
the back of my mind, I thought maybe in a couple of years I'll come back and give this another go. It was a huge risk to say I may never do this again. It was a real heart-wrenching decision. Once you filled out your last obligation, there were rumors that you left music because you were gay. That was a straw in my decision, but there were many straws on the camel's back at the time. I'm certainly in a same-sex relationship now, but when I suspended my work, that wasn't even really a factor. I had some difficult decisions to make, and what that meant for my life and deciding to invest in a same-sex relationship, but it would be completely unfair to say that's why I left music. Were you involved in a relationship at the time that you left? Well, around 2002, I was starting to contend with this newfound issue in my life, but I had already decided to leave music before I knew I was going to contend with that. I don't want anyone to think that I ran out of town with my tail between my legs because I had something to hide or that you were... Uh, or or that you were run out of town, or that I was run out of town. Neither is true. When you wrote The Way I Am, was that a veiled statement about being gay? That record means a lot more to me now than it did at the time. The whole record for me was an exercise in the carnal body of Christ manifested. One of the biggest decisions I was wrestling with then was, if I don't do Christian music, am I not a believer anymore? So why come out of the closet, so to speak? I'm in no way capable of leading a charge for some kind of activist movement. I, I'm just a normal human being who's dealing with ev normal everyday life scenarios. As a Christian, I'm doing that as best as I can. The heartbreaking thing to me is that we're all hopelessly deceived if we don't think that we that there are people within our churches, within our communities, who want to hold on to the person they love, whatever sex that may be, and hold on to their faith. It's a hard notion. It will be a struggle for those who are in the spot that they have to choose between one or the other. The struggle I've been through, and I don't know if I will ever be fully out of it, is feeling like I have to justify my faith or the decisions I've made or choose to love who I choose to love. Have you ever felt like you had to choose between your faith and your gay feelings? Well, yes, absolutely. Because you felt they were incompatible? Well, everyone around me made it absolutely clear that this is not an option for me to invest in the other person and for me to choose to do so would be a denial of my faith. What about scripture? What about what the scripture says on the topic? Well, the Bible has literally saved my life. I find myself between a rock and a hard place, between the conservative evangelical who uses what most people refer to as the clobber verses to refer to this loving relationship as an abomination while they're eating shellfish and wearing clothes of five different fabrics. The various other scripture we could argue about. I'm not capable of getting into the theological argument as to whether or not we should or shouldn't allow homosexuals within our church. There's a spirit that overrides that for me and what I've been gravitating to in Christ and what and why I became a Christian in the first place. Well, some argue that the feelings of homosexual are not uh, homosexuality are not sinful, but only the act. What would you say? I'm not capable of fully debating that well, but I've always struggled as a Christian with various forms of external evidence that we are obligated to show that we are Christians. So here's the deal. Um, this is a woman whose emotions have overridden the scriptures. And that's the typical thing that happens when, uh, with, uh, liberals and folks of this, of, you know, that, that embrace these ideas is that they let their emotions or their personal experience override the scriptures. And that wasn't even a biblical argument. What, how as Christians are we to deal with uh, this young lady, what should we think of her? What should we be doing? The answer is, well, we need to be praying for Jennifer Knapp. We need to pray that Christ grants her repentance of her sins. And yes, that does mean leaving her same-sex relationship. 
and pray that she'll be, you know, she'll receive Christ's forgiveness for her sins because scripture couldn't be clearer. Homosexuality bars people from the kingdom of heaven. And at this point, she is a practicing, unrepentant homosexual. It's sad. It's tragic. It's terrible. But the reality is, is that God's word stands, not her feelings, not her experiences, not the sins that she's struggling with. You don't affirm people in their sins. You call them to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. And so that's the way we are to love Jennifer Knapp. Sad, sad story, though. Man. All right. We are up on our second break, and when we come back, it's going to be sermon review time. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877 246 one five one one again that's eight seven seven two four six one five one one the good folks at allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone and remember you're in good hands with allstate (laughs) the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. 
Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, sermon review time. I'm in one of those moods where I'm like cleaning my office. Don't know what's gotten into me. Maybe I'm nesting. (laughs) I'm big enough. All right, time for sermon review. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Aviator Church in Derby, Kansas. Pastor Joe Boyd. Name of the sermon is Breakout. What are you listening for? How does Joe Boyd handle sin? Is this a therapy session or is this repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? One of the major problems with uh, the way folks are handling uh, the topic of sin nowadays in the church, it's talked about therapeutically, but it's not talked about in terms of confession in absolution, in terms of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And as a result of it, I think we're losing sight of what the biblical gospel is and the biblical way to handle, deal with, talk about, and uh, handle, you know, handle sin. It's part of the problem that we're having with uh, poor Jennifer Knapp. Got to pray for that gal. Pray for that Christ would grant her repentance and the forgiveness of her sins. <sighs> All right. Um, Kill the music here. All right, so um, without any further ado, here is um, a Breakout, Joe Boyd, Aviator Church, Derby, Kansas. How many of you have ever, have ever broken or stubbed your toe and it really, really hurt? And you had no idea that when you stubbed or broke your toe that that would make your back and your shoulders and your head hurt. How many of you have ever had that happen to you? All right, good. I'm not alone in that. Um, many of you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I've stubbed my toe before. It didn't hurt my head, though. Um, yeah, it's like saying I have a headache in my stomach. And, uh... know that I'm in the biggest loser contest here in Wichita. And, and yeah. Woo! 
Now, Joe, by the way, he's a big guy, and I'm uh, Joe. I'm happy to hear that you're uh, you're in the Biggest Loser competition in Wichita. I hope it's associated with the 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 television show, and uh, that you have an opportunity to go and train with uh, uh, Jillian and uh, Bob. Um, you know, but anyway, best of luck to you on your on your weight loss. And and a couple of weeks ago, we were we were. Um, going through something I like to call Hell Week, which they apparently call Cardio Week. And, uh, and, and there was a lot of uh, motion that had to take place, and I was in a hurry, and I stubbed my toe. And I thought that I broke it, and um, it was kind of a disability for me uh, because we had to do a lot of motion. And, and there was, there was this, this point where um, Satan, my trainer, uh, trainer uh, had, us, had us, you know, like squatted down in this position and we're lifting stuff and we're moving this and doing this and there's some of this action and I'm like, Lord, you know, some people say, make me a bird so I fly far, far away from here. They have never done this motion, okay? For, not with weights, okay? And, and so I'm dying and, and she has this all lined up and we have to do this motion continuously and I'm thinking we'll go a minute and we'll stop, but no, we just keep going. And, and one by one, she assigns us the task of taking a chair that has weights in it. I don't understand that. Uh, on wheels. And we have to push it all around the gym twice. And then we, we, we run outside, run up these stairs, touch a wall, run back down, come back in, tag, and the next person goes. Not tag and everybody takes a break which I voted for, but I was vetoed. And, and so we're, we're doing this, and, and everybody's running really, really fast and really hard, and um, they're just not going fast enough for me because I'm dying, and my foot hurts because I stubbed my toe. And so it comes time for me, and rather than, like, take off and run, I, I start to argue with the trainer, no, my, my, my toe hurts, and uh, I don't think it's fair because I'm going to hold everybody up. And she's just like, yeah, you're holding them up right now. And this, you know, the, the rest of the team's like. Okay, um, got a problem here. Joe, um, listen, I'm sh- sure regaling us with stories from your life is um, very interesting and entertaining f- to you. But your job as a pastor is to actually open up the Bible and start teaching and preaching what God's word says so that we can hear from God. And uh, your story of working out in this bigger loser competition in Wichita, Kansas, not found in the Bible. Just want to point that out. Run, fat boy, run! (laughs) You know, and they may not all believe in Jesus, but they were praying to him in that moment. And, um, and, And I was just like, Oh, Lord Jesus, give me the strength. Give me the strength. I'm pushing this chair around, and I run up the stairs, and, and you know, I'm just like, I get back, I tag in, I passed out. But, but, but everybody got to stop. <sighs> Thank you, Jesus. Get some water. One minute later, we do it again. But anyway, I was dying. And, and that was when I realized that, you know, Jesus helps broken people have breakouts. Do you know that? That Jesus can use broken people to have breakouts. And don't- Jesus uses broken people to have breakouts. Okay, what are you talking about? 
I I don't find this language in Scripture. I hear about sinners repenting and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and believing Jesus and then bearing fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life in keeping with that repentance. Is that what you're talking about? Because it doesn't sound like it. No matter what your ailment is, no matter what your pain is in your life, let me tell you that Jesus is the one that can get you through it. Um, because he's given you the ability, he's given you the strength, and sometimes all you need is the right motivation and the desire to have a breakout experience. What? Jesus can see you through it, you just have to have the desire? Where is this taught in the Bible? This is not Christian sanctification. This isn't even remotely close to the Christian doctrine of Christian sanctification. Where you break through... The, the thing that's holding you down. And so today I want to jump into a passage of scripture. It's found in John chapter 5. And it's a story of a man who has been paralyzed for quite some time. He has a disability and it's holding him back. And Jesus is coming to town. And in verse 1 we know Jesus is showing up for a festival. It's a happy occasion. But don't you know, even in the midst of Jesus coming into your life for a, a happy occasion... God just keeps finding the pressure points and the pains of life, and he has just an attraction to that, and he will encounter you wherever you are and wherever your disability, wherever your hurt, your habit, or your hang-up may be. He wants... Ah, disciple of Rick Warren. Celebrate recovery. This is therapy. This is not Christian sanctification. ...to find you there, and that's where we pick up in Scripture in chapter 5 of John, verse 2 through 6. It says, now there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. And I'm going to just pause and tell you that Bethesda actually means house of mercy, which is not where I train. But anyway, in which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, which are porches. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease he had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Everybody say 38 years. Okay. I hate that particular technique. Everyone say, um, I hate that technique. I hate that technique. Okay, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? A couple of things that jump out at me in this scripture are that God is always drawn to the disabilities and the hurts and the habits in our life. And I would say today that the reason why this scripture is so important what God is drawn to the disabilities and the hurts and habits in our life. Now, by the way, I'm going to read this uh, section of scripture here. I want, I want Joe though to kind of spin this out a little bit. I want to see where he tries to land with it before I circle back. And so, if you want to go to John chapter five in in preparation for what we're going to do, please feel free to do so. Uh, we will be there shortly. For us to have a breakout experience is because I believe that each and every one of us in this room have some form of disability in our life. I think if we were really honest and we wrote down, actually we wouldn't. If, if I said write down your disability, write down the thing that's hurting you, holding you back, chances are we wouldn't totally be honest. 
But I'm talking about the disability that only you know about. The one that, that when you're alone by yourself in the dead of night, the TV's off, you're just laying there, and you're just, you're just thinking. So, sin. You're talking about sin, not, not a disability. I mean, a di- I, when I think of disabilities, I think of somebody who, who, for whatever reason, has a physical handicap. They're, they have a disability. So has sin now been reduced to disability? It's not that I've actually sinned against a holy and just God. I, I just have a disability that keeps me from pleasing him. Oh, okay. Thinking and you're alone with your thoughts. It's the thing that haunts you, that creeps into your life, that continues to hold you down, where you feel like you almost can't breathe, move, or advance because you just feel chained up over this issue. For some of you, that may be that, that you have so much insecurity in your life that, that you walk into a room and when people laugh, you think they're laughing at you. It may be that you're the person who's the life of the party, a joke of men. So insecurity. Is insecurity a sin? Did Jesus die on the cross for insecurity? You laugh and carry on and you're so funny because what you're really doing is covering up the pain that's in your life. And if you can just keep people diverted on a joke or a punchline, they would never have time to really know that you are crushed and crumbling on the inside. It may be that you use material possessions as the novocaine of your life. That your, your marriage may be on the rocks, but you go out and you buy things, whether it's a bass boat or, or it's, it's more clothes to cover up the broken heart that you have. Or maybe it's a new car that you think you can just drive away from your problems. But when you get to the next destination, you pop the trunk and your baggage is still with you. And it may be that you continually think you're going to cover those things up, but you suffer from a disability because you try to solve the problem with something that's not God. It may be that you have a disability. So you, it's not that you're a sinner. You suffer from a disability. Uh, I mean, do I get disability pay because of my sin? Disability that is bitterness. A bitterness that was born inside of you when you had an offense that happened to you. Maybe when you were a young person, somebody did something to you that was not your fault. You didn't ask for it. it didn't, you didn't invite it into your life, but it happened. And, and you've never really gotten over that bump in the road. Something happened. And, and, and rather than dealing with it and having the surgery to dig that bullet out, it has infected you to the very core and calloused over and, and you maybe have a brokenness in your life and your body has just healed broken and you deal with that on a regular basis. It may be that, that, that you're not paralyzed like this man, but maybe you're paralyzed by your bad temper. And, and I know that we're in church and you're probably not, you know, blowing up and getting mad about the music or, or what I'm saying to you at this moment. But, but what about when you're alone? What about in the moment when you are driving in your car and somebody cuts you off and you blow up and tell them they're number one? with sign language. Or maybe it's, it's you, you go home and, and, and you say, oh, praise Jesus at church, but then something goes down with your kids and you scream and you holler and you just cannot let up. Maybe you're crippled by your temper. And maybe for some of you, you struggle with sexual temptation and, and lust and, and maybe that's born out of an insecurity and you think that somehow um, if somebody accepts me for me and uses my body, then you know that, that validates me. But... It's just a dysfunction that continues. It's a disability because they never really saw you for you and because they never really saw themselves the way that Jesus saw them. And because you've never seen that clear picture, you have this dysfunction. 
I believe that the scripture speaks to all of us today. And, and the thing that, that draws out to me is, is that this man was paralyzed for a long time. How long? 38 years. 38 years this man was paralyzed, and that's a long time. And God asks this, this, this question of him. Jesus asks him this question, and it almost makes me think that Jesus is mean. Because he's paralyzed, he's crippled, he's laying there, and, and Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? And I think, dang, Jesus, he's laid up, man. He, you know, what's up? Don't you know? But see, I think that Jesus does know, and I think he asks a very important question. I think he's asking that same question of you and I. And guys, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not throwing something on you because I know I have my own set of dysfunctions. I know I have my own disabilities. I wear my shame on the outside of me, but I know that, and I'm doing something about it. One step, one calorie, one meal at a time. But my question is, what's going on in your life that, that's hidden that other people maybe don't see? I mean, you obviously suffer from a disability. Huh. Let's just let him go a little bit longer. Hang on. We'll get to John chapter 5 in a minute. I'm going to show you something. That's holding you back. And Jesus is asking me and Jesus is asking you, do you want to get well? And I believe the reason why he's asking that is because Jesus understands something about a long-term disability, hurt, habit, addiction that takes place in our life. And I believe it's this, that I believe you can go so long with a disability, dysfunction, or brokenness in your life that you begin to believe that that is normal. And you begin to believe that that's just the way it's always going to be. I guess I'm just destined to always be here. I guess I'm always destined to never have a healthy relationship. I guess I'm just, I guess that's just going to be the way it's going to be. And, and, and how many of you know that you, you often surround yourself? So sins are disabilities and uh, apparently we're just victims of stinking thinking. Hang on, we'll get to John 5 in a second. With really screwed up people that are really screwed up, but they tell you, oh, you're not that bad. You don't need to change. I mean, get real. We surround ourselves with dysfunction all the time, and, 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 and I think that Jesus is cutting through that, and he's asking this man the question, do you want to get well? And I believe Jesus is asking you that question as well today. Do you want to get well? Well, I believe that the problem is, that you can't really get well until you have a desire in your heart to want to do so. And I believe that you will never have a breakthrough until your desire is greater than your disability. So you'll never have a breakthrough until your desire is greater than your disability. This is um, 12-step program talk. This is not biblical sanctification at all that we're hearing at this point. Hang in there. We're going to get to John 5 in a second. Do you hear me on that? That, that you're never going to have a breakthrough, a God experience that's going to transform your life until the desire in you to get well is greater than the disability that you've allowed to hold you down for far too long. And I think that there's a lot of people that are so comfortable with mediocrity and the dysfunction in their life, that they believe that that is the new normal. And that they had this bad temper and this fit of rage 
and they will use it. They don't want to change because they'll use that fit of rage and temper to control the people in their life to get what they want. And they're scared to make a change because they think, if I try to change and I fail, then that means I'm a failure. And then what? And I have to suffer one more loss and one more beat down and one more bruised ego. And I don't know if I can take it anymore. I'll just keep limping along with this thing in my life that's holding me down because at least I know what to expect. Does anybody want to change? Does anybody here want to get well? Jesus is asking a question. Notice what Jesus does not ask. Jesus does not ask this paralyzed man, can you get well? Because he's not concerned about whether or not you think you can. There's a lot of things I didn't think I could do that I can do now. But God knows that you can do it because he's God and he can help you do it. But the second question that he doesn't ask is how did you get this way? I mean, don't we, don't we look at people that are in a bad way and we say, well, you know, what did you do to get, cause all that? Do you notice that Jesus is not concerned about the past? He's concerned about the present because he's got a future for you. He wants to know that you can make the move forward. And he's dying to know, do you have the desire to overcome the disability in your life? The question is, do you want to? And the problem is oftentimes we allow the downside of the situation to far out, outweigh our want to. Um, hang on a second here. Open up your Bible if you haven't already. John chapter 5, verse 1. Watch this story carefully. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Jesus has reason to believe this guy does not want to be healed. He's been there for 38 years. Well, the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now, so that you know what's going on here, uh, at this time there was a miracle taking place at that pool. <clears throat> and uh, on occasion, an angel would get into the water, and when the waters were stirred, first person in got healed. It was a gracious thing that God had, had done there. This guy spent 38 years there, which basically comes, calls into question whether or not he really wants to be healed. I mean, seriously. 38 years, he couldn't figure out how to be the first one in. I mean, if I were in a position, his position, where I was really wanting to get healed, if I was, if I were wanting to get healed and I could be at that pool, I mean, I'd be hanging out right at the edge of the water and I'd have somebody there with me. And as soon as it was, as soon as the water was stirred, I'd have someone throw me in. Okay. This guy doesn't seem to want to be healed. Now, just so happens that the day that he was healed was the Sabbath. So this guy's taken up his mat, and he's walking, and he's going along, and he's going back the way Jesus told him to. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, well, the man who healed me, the ma that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. 
Well, they asked him, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Okay, now, so here's what happens. He's healed. He's taking up his bed and walking, and he's run afoul of the Pharisees. Pharisees telling him, it's not lawful to have your mat. You're sinning. You're sinning. Who told you how to do that? He didn't know who it was. Now, see if you can detect any gratitude on the part of this paralytic guy who got healed. Okay, watch this. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse might happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed them. Yeah, you see what's going on? This guy didn't want to get healed. Jesus healed him, kind of against his will, tells him to stop sinning. And what's this way, guy's way of saying, thank you, Jesus, for healing me? He ratted on Jesus and told, hey, that's the guy who told me to take up my mat and walk. <sighs> wasn't for him, I'd be still down there being able to you know, continue doing what I was doing. So the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was uh, why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working into now, and I am, and I am working. So um, here's the deal. Um, Pastor Boyd is basically trying to make the claim that, you know, you can't, you know, overcome your whatevers until your desire outstrips your disability. Yeah, the problem is, is that in the story from John chapter 5, the the paralytic never had the desire to be healed. Jesus heals him against his will, and the way this guy uh, thanks Jesus is by ratting on him and telling him, you know, turning him into the authorities. Yeah, this is not what I would consider to be a story that supports these therapeutic um, concepts that uh, Pastor Boyd here is teaching at Aviator Church. Which, which brings me to the second point that, that he makes a response. Let, let's catch this. This man is responding to Jesus, and he's about to make a colossal mistake based on the opportunity to have a huge breakout experience in his life and be able to be healed from this experience. And here's where, what he says in yeah, John. Joe, Joe, he didn't want the breakout experience. Chapter 5, verse 7. Sir. Sir, he's already missed it. He's talking to the Son of God, and he calls him Sir. I mean, when was the last time you prayed a prayer? Sir, please bless this food to nourish my bodies. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Saying Sir was kind of a polite way of talking to Jesus. It was being, he was being respectful. <sighs> Seriously, he missed it. He doesn't understand who he's talking to. And so here's what he says. Sir, the invalid replied... I have no one to help me into the pool where, where the water is stirred. While, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Ah. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, no one is helping me. I want to get in there, but everybody gets in ahead of me. I, me, Want to talk about me? Want to talk about I? Want to talk about number one? Me, oh my? Right? Right? 
You want to talk about how I think I feel? Blah, blah, blah. Call a ambulance, man. Seriously. We cry and we just try to make all sorts of excuses in our life. And, and the problem is you can no longer try to use excuses by blaming and accusing other people for the problem that you're in. Because Jesus, that's not what he's looking for. He's not looking for the excuse. He's not looking for the accusation of others. He's looking for the desire to change. Yeah, that guy had no desire at all. How, again, does this passage support this this therapeutic sermon? And, and what's interesting is, I don't know about you, but this guy, he's at a pool, and when the water stirs... Because an angel touches it, whoever's the first one in the water is going to get healed. Now, I don't know about you, okay? All I can say is, as for me, I would, I would be right on the edge of the water. I mean, even if I couldn't walk, I think I would crawl. Because I learned that back when I was a kid. I would be on the edge, I'd be on the tipping point, and I would wait until I just heard or saw the water stumbling, rumbling, and I'd just fall in. Because I know how to do a cannonball. Okay, I would do it. I would be there. And, 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 and I think that a lot of times that there is this desire that we've just got to, we got to find a way. We've got to have a desire in our heart and an attitude that we'll just find a way. And I, I, in my house, we just have this attitude, we're going to find a way. I mean, this, this goes beyond just the people in my house. Even the animals in my house live by this principle. Okay, I got this cat motorboat. You know motorboat. You've seen motorboat. Motorboat's crazy. You know what I feel bad about for my cats? My cat doesn't have an opposable thumb. Seriously. I mean, the cat is at a major disadvantage when it comes to things in our house. Because in our house, when it's time to go to bed, we go into the room, we shut the door. And if the dogs or the cat are in, then they're in and they can sleep on the corner of the bed. But if they're out and they're in the living room, you're on your own. You know? And, and so motorboat just kind of does her own thing. And we shut the door one night, and motorboat is outside and wants to get in, and we hear, meow. Michelle's like, the cat's in the hall. I'm like, just, just, she'll learn. Just let her meow. Meow! I mean, it's just nonstop. It's on and on. I'll give it to you. Motorboat's persistent. Okay, but, but, but I'm not backing down. And I hear this, like, paw at the door. If you translate that, that's, Joe, why are you a bad person? Open the door. You know? And, and I'm just like, got to learn. This cat is just like, I'll find a way. And so we hear this, like, stirring around on the floor. And all of a sudden we hear this, click, 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 click. I'm like, what in the world? Our cat that does not have opposable thumbs that are necessary to turn a doorknob jumped up and caught the doorknob and then twisted the body until the door handle turned and in the darkness, the light shined in. And motorboat comes walking in, tail, Our cat can find a way, okay? 
When you have a will, there is a way. When you have enough desire, you can overcome the disability, and it's not going to hold you back. In my own personal life, I can tell you that, that the first church I ever worked for, um, there what? Okay, so the biblical story he's telling doesn't support his where there's a will, there's a way therapy kind of idea. Uh, the cat story supposedly does support it, and now we're getting another story from this guy's life. <sighs> youth budget, I mean, it was so bad that I couldn't even buy a Happy Meal with the annual budget. It was bad. And they had this line item for continuing education, which was like $89. And I'm like, awesome. So I can go to the conference, but I can't eat. I can't stay in a hotel. I can't really drive there. Um, but if I can teleport there, then I can be at the conference. Sweet. I'm in. Well, I, I just sucked it up. I just ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, pimento cheese sandwiches for the whole week. Um, I, I paid for the conference because I wanted to go because I wanted to be the best that God wanted me to be. I knew that there were things I needed to learn, and I couldn't learn them staying where I was doing the same old thing I'd always done. I needed to get out of my element and go learn from somebody who did something and overcame something that I've never overcome. And so I went to the Faith in Action conference that took place in Houston, Texas, and it was like three and a half hours away, and I had to spend the night. And so I went to Houston, Texas, and, and I slept in my car. And paid the registration and ate pimento cheese sandwiches because I wanted to see and, and, and experience what God was teaching and what was going to happen in that conference. And when I got there, I heard this guy speak, and I'm so glad that I went because I had showered in a gas station that morning, and that's a special experience in, in Houston, Texas. And, and, and I went in, and I heard this guy speak, and afterwards, I, I, I don't know about you, but I want to be on the front row when I go to an event. I don't, I don't want to be in the nosebleeds, okay? I want to be on the front row. And so I camped out, showered in the gas station. I was the first one with the doors open. Bang! Big boy in the front. Okay, I'm there. This guy speaks because I wanted to ask him a question, and the one that's closest to him is going to get in line first to get the answer to the question that you have. And some of you have a disability, but you're still hanging out on the back row expecting to encounter God from a distance when he wants it to be up close and personal. You feeling me? And this man sat me down, and we were talking afterwards in the hallway when everybody else had walked away. And this guy, what made him famous was he was on the cover of Time Magazine. It had his face, and it said, God versus gangs. And he was from Boston. And in the Boston area, in his, in his part of Boston, it was one of the most dangerous places that you could live. They had more murders happening every year in his neighborhood than anywhere else in the entire city of Boston. And it was happening because his church was on the line between two gangs that were warring with one another over who was going to have the rights to sell drugs in that area. And he, he realized, God, I don't know what's going to change because we're burying more young kids in our neighborhood than we're burying the old people. And something's got to change. And God led him and prompted him to go and have a face-to-face -face meeting with the gang leader. And he shows up and he's like, I don't really know what the appropriate thing is. You know, they have, they have blue and they have red. And all I had was like a little white collar. And so I showed up with that. And, 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 and he walks in and he says, I... I'm not really sure what the protocol is. I didn't know who to call. Um, I don't have your beeper number. But I, I needed to talk to the leader of your gang because we need to do something. we got a problem, and I need your help solving it. And so, amazingly, the gang leader, the top guy, sits down with him. And he says, look, we got a problem. People are dying everywhere around us. And, and, and your guys, are, your kids that are in your gang are killing other kids 
and there's all these kids that are getting killed, and we're burying more of them than we're burying old people, and that's a problem. And, and he said, what's killing me is our church is in decline. All the churches in our area are dying. Our city's dying. We're suffering an enormous heartache, and I want to know, why do you think that is? And the gang leader says, you really want to know why we win, why you lose? And he said, yeah, I really do. He says, okay, preach, I'll tell you. He said, when, when, when the little kids in our neighborhood, they get up and they go out to the bus to go to school, we're there and you're not. When they go to school, they're on lockdown because they got to go in, metal detectors, but there's this thing they call recess and lunch, and they're out hanging by the fence, and we're by the fence. We're there, you're not. When school's out, they don't go home to mom and dad. They go to after-school program or they go hang out with grandma because there's nobody around to watch them. And if nobody's watching them, we're there. You're not. We win. You lose. And when I heard that, I knew right then and there that whenever I was facing the difficulties in my neighborhood and in my community that I lived in and in my world and my personal realm of influence, if I was going to see a change, I needed to work it like a drug dealer. I needed to be there when nobody else was. And when it comes to the pool of Bethesda, if you know the place where, where you can get well and you don't go there, the person that gets there before you wins and you lose. And what kills me is that Jesus is the one that can get you well. And, and there are some of you that will allow somebody else to have this amazing encounter with God, but you won't line up for it. You won't. You'll let somebody else have this amazing encounter with God. Show up for the personal time with Jesus and get in the Bible and let God do something in your life. You know, I'm, I'm just going to say this. I wasn't, but I'm going to say it. There, there are people who will make accusations and accuse other people and try to use that as an excuse for why they won't change. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that, that the way I hear it is this. Well, I just, I just don't go to that church anymore because I just don't get fed there. And you know, for a long time, I used to believe that that was valid. I used to think, oh, man, that's right. You know, churches are very good. Maybe, maybe we should preach better. Maybe we should make the music better. Maybe we should, maybe we should put the words up on the screen for people. Maybe we should, we, we should get them Bibles and have Bibles available for them to get in church because everybody's got a Bible. And we would make all those excuses. But I find that the people that say that are not the people that are brand new that don't know Christ that are coming to find out about Jesus. It's the people that have been following Jesus for a long time. And they just say, well, I just don't really like the menu. I don't feel like I've been fed there. How many of you? Yeah, maybe because the pastor isn't doing his biblical job of feeding God's sheep with God's word like this sermon. Have you ever um, eaten a family meal? And uh, how many of you have done that? Good. Everybody eats here. Awesome. I'm not alone, my people. Okay, so um, how many of you ever had that relative that, that prepares the dinner and says, hey, if you go away hungry, it's your fault? You got that? I got a grandpa. He tells us that every time. Well, if you don't get enough to eat, it's your fault. It's not because there's not enough here. Well, see, I got to thinking about that. And it's like, you know what? In Proverbs 26, 15, it says this. It says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. I, I, I really believe that, that we present the, the word of God to people. And, and we ask you to dive in and have a personal relationship with Jesus. And we'd do anything to help you do that. We'd give you a Bible. And if you're like, well, I can't read scripture, I would ask, do you not know how to read? Because we'll get you in a literacy program. Because I believe that God can change your life. And, and if, you, if, if you need to, we can get you an MP3 and hear the word of God. But, but I believe that. Yeah, but I'm not going to actually preach it. 
for real. There are people who are literally sitting in church, which is like a buffet. Of- really? A purpose-driven church is like a big buffet of Bible. Yeah, you. sorry, this sermon isn't even close to a buffet. It's kind of like a Twinkie. Half a Twinkie. God's Word, and they're just not willing to pick up the spoon and feed themselves, and they continue to have a disease of spiritual malnourishment, and they would rather accuse someone else of not feeding them. And, and I fed my... My, my my nephew, Peter, who is like a little bitty kid, but you got to feed little kids and they don't always want to eat their mac and cheese. And so you have to, you know, vroom, 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 here come the airplane. And you, you know, you feed them and trick them into eating. But but there's a point where some people don't do that. And, 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 and he's two and that's okay now. But when he grows up and he's 40, if we're still... This is the kind way of ripping off uh, Perry, not Perry Noble, but... Uh... Stephen Furtick, he made this kind of comment a few years ago. Uh-huh, yeah, basically trying to defend himself and say it's your fault if you claim that you're not being fed at our church. Stop saying I'm not preaching the word. You need to go and feed yourself. Having to feed him his mac and cheese, we got a problem. And I believe that if we say that we're Christ followers and we're not digging into God's word and trying to find, a, find personal transformation through God's word in our own lives, that we're no better off than a 40-year-old person that's sitting around in diapers asking somebody to feed them mac and cheese. Because we just can't go, here come the sermon, open wide. It's not going to work. And I know I'm not getting an amen on that. but I- Yeah, you're definitely not getting an amen because God's word tells you to preach the word. You are absolutely in defiance of what God's word tells you to do, Pastor. And this attitude that you have is absolutely contradictory and rebellious against what God's word commands you to do as a pastor. How dare you browbeat people because they're saying they're not being fed by you when it's obvious that they're not because you're barely even opening up the scriptures and you don't even know how to handle them correctly. I know in my heart that God's saying, preach. Preach on that. Which brings me to our next point, that, that we got to find the way. And, and, and when you face a disability, there's four responses that you can make to that disability. There's four things that you can do to respond when you have a disability, when you're faced with this life-changing moment that Jesus wants for you more than you want it for yourself. The first is you can nurse it, you can curse it, you can rehearse it, or you can reverse it. And I'm going to unpack that. And which verses teach this uh, rehearse it, verse it, whatever? Oh, man, this. Oh. Real quick for you. You can, when you face your disability, you can nurse it. Um, sometimes what I find is that, that people will. Get- what about repentance and the forgiveness of sins? The Bible doesn't talk about disabilities and life transformation. It talks about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Not therapeutic life change. Get into these situations where they nurse their disability. They say, oh, well, I'm just the way I am. And they hang out with a bunch of other people that are also sick. How many of you know that, that, that you can get sick going to the doctor? Like, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm a friendly guy and I like to talk to everybody, but I'll tell you this, that if I go to the doctor's office and I've got a cold, 
I'm probably not going to come sit right next to you at the doctor's office while I wait in the waiting room because I don't want to get what you've got and I don't want to give you what I got. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there with a little, <coughs> but I'm looking over here and this dude's got green stuff coming out of his eye. I'm just not going to go sit there. And we surround ourselves with all sorts of people that are sick all around us and we just welcome them into our life and we say, oh, yeah, I know you have a drug addiction, but we can be friends and hang out. It's like, no, if you're hanging out playing patty cakes with your supplier and you're a drug addict, you need, you, if you're going to have a, break, a breakout experience and a breakthrough, you need to break away. You know, because, because I heard this guy say this in the gym the other day. Man, I've got, I got tennis elbow. I'm like, man, you ain't got no tennis elbow. You didn't get tennis elbow with a buffet belly. It didn't happen because you weren't playing tennis. I'm just saying. You can nurse it. When you face a disability, you can curse it. You can, man, you can be negative all day. I hate the place I am. I hate where I'm at. I can't stand it. I hurt. I ache. Ah, nah, 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 nah. Or you can do something about it. Because complaining, it, you don't have to be creative or special or have any, any real abilities to complain. Anybody can be a critic. I mean, I hate it whenever, like, critics bash movies. Dude, you know how much it takes to make a movie? Man, go make a movie and then be a critic. You know, it's like, don't complain about it. Don't curse it. Do something about it. Because you complaining about it doesn't make it any better. The third thing is you can rehearse it. Oh, okay, here we go. You can rehearse it. Um, this bad thing happened to me in my life, and I'm a controlling person now because my diapers were too tight as a young child, and I feel like I was constricted then, so now I'm trying to control everything now. Hmm. Well, you can keep going back to that past offense and keep watching the same game tape and never get... Can you talk about a holy and just God who's going to hold us accountable for our sins and where people are going to burn in hell because of the wrath of God against their sin and rebellion against him? Get over the situation, or you can decide that you're going to break free and forget about the past, focus on the present because God's got a future for you. Or you can just keep going back to the past and focus that way when God's saying go this way. And by, by the way, the word... Where does God say any of this? The word repent means to do a U-turn, move away from where you're walking and go the other direction. God's saying turn around and get focused. God is saying more than just turn around. He's saying more than repent. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. God doesn't just say repent. He says, be forgiven. Quit rehearsing. And finally, you can reverse it. And I believe this is what Jesus wants for you and Jesus wants for me. He wants us to reverse the trend that we're in. Because when he says, you've been disabled for this long time, the question is, do you want to get well? And the response is, yes. But you have to take action. Now, I believe that there are many people who want to have a breakthrough, but I'm going to say this. They want to have a breakthrough, and they want it to be a breakthrough overnight. But the problem is most of us are not going to have a lousy marriage and have a breakthrough, and the next week we're going to write a book on marriage. It's just not going to happen. Okay? But but, but God is saying, I would rather you break free a little bit by little bit than stay chained up for the rest of your life. Because you can't accuse other people for the rest of your life and use it as an excuse. You've got to break free from that. If you're married and you're a man and you have a wife that's nagging, that shouldn't stop you from being the man that God called you to be. And if you're a woman and you're married to a man and he's like lazy and won't follow through, it, would, it shouldn't change. Your when did this guy become an expert on any of this stuff? Why should I be listening to him? He's not preaching the word correctly and he's, he is giving me life tips for life transformation.
your ability to lead a Christian life and be the woman that God called you to be. God's calling you to rise above. And maybe you're not going to change it overnight, but maybe you can sit down to dinner tonight and actually start a conversation and maybe move in the right direction. The final point I'm going to end on is this, that Jesus wanted us to have a response. He, he wanted this man to respond. And, and I think that a lot of times we are, we are caught up in watching the rest of the world happen and go on around us when what we really need to do is smash the things that we're watching and just do away with watching and get into the doing because God wants us to take action. In fact, this week, Zach went out and he demonstrated what we should do. Instead of watching our problems and watching the world go by, we should actually smash them. And I want you to take a quick look at this and we'll wrap it up. Uh, it's showing a kid uh, smashing a television set to punk music. In case you missed it, it's the replay. Well, what does this have to do with Christ at all? I... Okay, they're showing the television being smashed by this kid for the fifth time now. Boom, baby. Seriously, that was a point in your sermon, showing a kid smashing a television set. Drop the hammer on it. Baseball bat that bad boy. Is your desire bigger than your disability, or are you going to continue to watch... And watch and watch and watch, or are you going to take action? In, in John chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. God told him to do it, and he had a choice. He was in that moment, he could either make the choice to do it or not. And I believe. That no, he didn't have a choice. Jesus healed him against his will. He wasn't thrilled with it, and so he ratted on Jesus afterwards. When you actually know what's going on in the story, what you're saying, Pastor Boyd, doesn't make any sense. There are people in this room today that know what God's been telling you to do. You know the right thing. You know what steps you need to take. God told you to do it. He said, get up and walk. But you just continue to ignore him and choose to be disobedient. Now he's allegorizing the text. When God's saying, get up and walk, and this paralyzed man had to make a decision, and because in that moment his desire became greater than his disability, it says at once... No, it had nothing to do with his desire becoming greater than his disability. Jesus said, get up and take your mat and walk. When Jesus heals you, you don't have a choice. You're going to be healed. Just like the dead gal was it was the dead kid the you know the Jesus touched the beer and says, "Get up and walk," or the little girl who was dead, Talitha Kume, he t tells her to get up. I mean, no choice there. <sighs> the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And my question for you today is, are you going to continue? They're all clapping, but he's not reading the text in context and telling us the truth about what this passage says. To sit there and wallow in the pain and the discomfort of your situation that you're in, or are you going to decide to get up and walk it out? Are we going to walk out our faith? Are we going to walk out on God? Because God is saying, I'm here and I'm asking you this very important question. 
Do you want to get well? Do you? And so today, I'm just going to finish with that. We're going to pray, and I'm going to ask this question. Do you want to get well? And you're going to be faced with this decision. You can choose to continue to sit there and allow the disability, the thing that's hidden in your life that nobody else knows about, the thing that when you lay down at night, a tear rolls out of your eye. Notice, you got to make a decision. He's not offering you the forgiveness of your sins. He's offering you, basically challenging you to make a decision about whether or not your desire is greater than your disability. Oh, this is just wrong. Because you know that you are crippled and held down and locked down in chains on this issue. Or you can choose to say and respond to God, I'm going to get up and walk. And today your response is very simple. We're going to pray. And if you feel like God is speaking to you directly, it's not me asking the question, do you want to get well? It's Jesus. And I'm going to, I'm going to pray that and we're going to ask that question. If you want to get well today, if you want to have that encounter with God, if you want God to transform your life, that's not dependent on some water, but it's dependent upon an encounter and a decision to do what God says to do, then I'm going to ask you to stand up and get up out of your seat because now's the time to get out of your seat and on your feet and begin to stand up and walk. Today is the day that our city is never going to be the same. And it's not going to be the same because of what we did out there. It's going to be because of what God does in here. Let's pray. Oh, man. Jesus, I just pray in this moment that we would no longer allow our disabilities, our habits, our hurts, our addictions uh, to dominate our life anymore. God, I pray that people would... Where's the forgiveness of sins? You're basically leaving people, telling them that they have to overcome this problem really in their own power. You're, tell, you're preaching repentance without the forgiveness of sins. You'll be set free because your word promises that, that those that you free are free indeed. God, you've set the captives free and you, you're just waiting for people to get up and walk. But God, you're asking a very important question to people in here that are hurting on the inside, going through a lot of just a lot of junk in their life. They've never really fully surrendered the flag, put up the white flag and said, I surrender, Jesus. I want to do what you say. I'm going to just quit trying to run my life and I'm going to let you be in charge. I'm going to do what you say. And you're asking them this very simple question. Do you want to be well? If that's you, now's your time. So you're basically offering them temporal wellness based upon their desire have exceeding the yeah, right this, this is not biblical sanctification this is not christian sanctification this is therapy and you making a decision you know to finally once and for all do the thing you need to do to overcome the situation that has overcome you good luck i mean you don't even need a crucified and risen savior for this do you want to be well? I heard a seat move. Somebody wants to be well. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Stand. Receive what God wants to do in your life. Don't stand because other people are standing. I want you to respond. Jesus is in your face, close encounter, and he's saying, do you want to be well? Do you want to break free of the financial struggles that you've had that you've put yourself in? where you, you strung yourself out on credit and now's the time where the credit's being called back on you. Maybe, maybe you've been in a relationship and you've, you've been broken and you need to get well. Maybe, maybe you're... I, I want you to keep in mind, 
Pastor Boyd here. He looks like he weighs about 400 pounds. Struggling with, with some hurt in your past, and, and you're saying, Joe, you don't know what happened to me. I was molested as a child, but, but I know that history is full of people who have endured enormous amounts of pain and suffering, but they believe that God is bigger than the thing that happened in the past. And they believe that through the power of Jesus Christ, they can overcome whatever they've dealt with. Where is the cross? Where is the biblical Jesus and the forgiveness of sins? Uh, This is just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, Therapeutic. um, 12-step help, I guess. It's not biblical, but somebody's life might change. They might finally muster enough desire to change something in their life. But what about the forgiveness of the sin? The past, that their God's promised future is better than their present or their past. My question today is, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Lord Jesus, I just pray over these people that are standing in this auditorium that, God, you would... You You know what the tragedy of this is? There are people standing up that obviously they feel trapped by their own sin. And the solution that has been offered to them is them basically deciding and trying harder. And supposedly Jesus wants them to wants to give them the power to heal themselves. No forgiveness of sins, no mercy, no. Uh, the, oh, these hurting people are being manipulated and they're only going to get hurt worse. Miraculously touch their life that you would help them to be healed, that you would help them to take the steps of recovery, that, that, that God, you would, you, would, you would walk with them. You promised that you'd never leave or forsake us, and that, that, God, you're with us to the very end of the age. God, I thank you for the people that victoriously stood up and took the ground and said, I want to be free. I want to be free. I want to be free. God, I pray that you would just use this as a catalyst to spur a change, not just in our church, but in our entire community, that people would be set free by the power of your word and your promise. And God, may we begin to step up, step out, and walk it out. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, at least they get to hear hear Jesus' name, a passage completely mangled, and no forgiveness of sins. It's not the biblical gospel, and it's not the biblical good news. If you're the one who has to fix it all and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and basically you're told to repent, but never told of what Christ did for you on the cross in basically, basically, in dying for those sins that you've committed, paying the penalty for them. The way you're set free from your sins is not you deciding to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If that were the case, we don't need a Savior. We don't need Jesus. We just need to be shown the right direction so that we can make good decisions to head off in the right direction. But no, we need a Savior. That's why Christ came. God in human flesh, come to die for the sins of the world, your sins and mine. And he calls us to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins. Not just behavior modification by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and trying harder and meaning it this time when you say that you're making a decision your desire can outweigh your disability. This was therapy. This was not Christian sanctification. But the good news that we have to offer as Christians is that Christ died for 
those sins. He died for you, even while you were weak and powerless and didn't couldn't even muster the desire to overcome your, quote, disabilities. Hate even talking in those terms. It doesn't depend upon your desire. It depends upon your great God and Savior who has done it all for you and calls you from death to life, from darkness to light. It calls you from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Repent and believe this good news and be forgiven of your sins and rest in that. That's what the Christian message is all about, and that's what the gospel is all about, and that's what Christian sanctification is rooted in, the forgiveness of sins. You need it, and I proclaim it to you now. Christ died. For your sins. Repent, be forgiven. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, when you get to the website, you'll find two yellow buttons. One says, join our crew. The other says, donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute uh, $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith. And um, it automatically comes out of your account. And when you uh, when we get to 1,000 listeners, uh, then we are able to pay our bills every month. Kind of important. <laughs> you know, bill paying, mucho bueno. It's very good to pay bills because that means we can continue uh, doing what we do here. So we need uh, about 300 more folks to join our crew. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the blank as to how much you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? Are you going to make a decision to, is your desire going to outstrip your disability so that you can finally experience uh, life change and life transformation? You don't need a crucified and risen Savior for that. You can go get that at a 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous. Therapy, sit on the couch. You don't need a crucified and risen Savior for that. Christianity offers a crucified and risen Savior. calls you to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. Think about it. The difference is stark. That wasn't a Christian sermon. Well, if you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.